Welcome to the Just Ask Mom podcast, where mothers share their experiences of raising children with mental illness. Just Ask Mom is a Mothers on the Frontline production. Today we will listen to Diana, an Iowa parent with a 17-year-old daughter with anxiety and depression. So tell us a little bit about yourself before or outside of mothering. What are your passions? Who are you? What do you love? Well, I enjoy biking and taking long bike rides, not competitively or anything, but just kind of pedaling along. I enjoy yoga. Oh, nice. And take some time for that when I can. Um, And I enjoy writing. Oh, wonderful. Do you like creative writing, journaling? What kind of stuff do you do? All of that. I used to write for the newspaper. Oh, lovely. Um, Just a column, you know, just kind of a life in the day of life of mom. That was, that was fun. Oh, that's wonderful. That's great. So I want you to pretend that you're talking to people who just haven't had any direct experience with mental illness. They don't, whether in their own life or anyone else in their direct family or friends, they just haven't had to deal with it. What would you like them to know about your experience? What I would like them to know beyond just my experience and just in general, but particularly with me, if you see me, is that it isn't always what you think it is, and it doesn't always look how you think it's supposed to look. And please don't make the assumption that we might be wrong or dramatic or overreacting. And I know it might seem like that at times, but please just put compassion first and really trust that somebody who is living a situation, particularly with their own child, their own family member, they are the expert. And if they say something that doesn't really make sense to you based on what you observe of that child or that person, please just be compassionate and believe that there's probably a lot going on under the surface or, you know, things that you don't understand about it um, and appreciate their honesty and being able to share. Absolutely. Can you think of um, examples of where people have just not seen, like they see it one way, but something else is going on that... You just wish you could just sort of scream (laughs) every day, (laughs) every day. So an example that comes to mind is a parent teacher conference in which I was trying once again to gently and with a friendly face, remind teachers that my daughter has a 504 plan and that she has these accommodations and that they're legally required to provide those to her. And we were having a little difficulty and the teacher said, well, I, I just don't think she's anxious. I mean, I don't see it. I, I don't think she has anxiety, frankly. Wow. Um, which is kind of a classic example, and I actually Absolutely. appreciate the candor that that um, teacher showed because there are other people who are more passive about it, but they certainly seem to be indicating that maybe my hypervigilance is causing anxiety, yeah. and that's tough to take. Um, it's a little insulting. And there are people who sell my daughter short, um, and kind of limit her based on, well, if she's really anxious, then maybe she should just do this and and not even try this other thing. I think that's a really good point because mental illness is portrayed a certain way in the media and movies and all this kind of thing. And um, the assumption is you could see and know what's going on with someone, but someone could be going through a whole lot and look fine on the outside sometimes, right? Or at least be able to do that for a small amount of time when they're at school or work or what have you, right? Mm -hmm. And so... It would be easy to for someone to not notice because they're not living with it day to day. Right, and I think that my daughter is very much like that. I think that girls in general are designed with 
being a people pleaser in mind more often. And so you might not see what you think you're supposed to see if somebody has mental illness. And I will see and hear all about it, let me assure you, when the <laughs> wheels come off the bus later, right. when they're at home, which is their safe space. Talk um, about that, because that's what I think people don't understand, right? For so many of us, our kids, as soon as they get home to where it's safe or to the people they're safe with, all hell breaks loose, as they say, right? It gets really rough because they're Finally, they can let go of what they needed from the whole day. Is right. that something you experience? Oh, yeah. I've experienced that since she started school. Honestly, since she was five years old. And the very first thing that she would report, and it was daily, and I never even put it together that it was from school, was I have a tummy ache. Like, I would say, how's school? I'd walk over and pick her up. How's school? It was good. I have a tummy ache. Every day. And so I went to the pediatrician. Um, anyway, so the point is that it's very long-standing, and it was a long road for even the medical professionals to realize that it wasn't a, a physical, well, it was a physical ailment, but what might be underneath it because a child of that age lacks the words or the even knowledge of what it is. But I think going back to what I said earlier about please don't diagnose us or say yes. that I might be part of the problem. Well, if she's only doing this around you, well, she's only doing it around me because she can. She knows that I will still love and accept her no matter what. Exactly. And she is barely holding it together. And so are a ton of other people in school every day or at work even. And they're just waiting to be able to come undone because they perceive that to be successful and functional in our society, that they have to assimilate. They have to be like the other people around them. And so they're exhausted by the time they get home because not only have they had to face several stressors throughout the day, they've also had to pretend to feel like other people who aren't experiencing it. So they're, they're exerting a tremendous amount of energy. They're not only in pain internally, they're experiencing, they're exerting a so much amount of energy all day long. They get home, they're exhausted. So what does mom get? Mom gets the exhausted. The so meltdown. you get the full meltdown. So us moms, we get all that. So we're stressed and tired because we have that well, sometimes full time. Right. And then we are the crazy person because we're then getting on the email at 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> exactly. The following is what my daughter perceives happened today. I realized because sometimes I would get emails where they were assuring me that wasn't the case. I know that's not the case. I'm relieved <laughs> to you that that's what she thinks happened. And Absolutely. so please have some compassion tomorrow when you see her again and love up on her, those kinds of things. And I, you really do come across as the crazy parent because A, they don't see that in right. behavior exhibited. We, they get late night, seemingly insane emails from a parent. <laughs> right. And they're not seeing what you're going through right. with your child. Right. So I, I just think there's so many levels to what you just said that's so important that it's invisible. And we do sound hysterical a lot of the times. But ultimately, this is the life of our kid on the line. So, of course, we feel that way, right? Yes. And I think so. that every... Well, I want to say teacher, but it probably goes beyond that in society. But people who are part of a system should be forced to watch like a documentary or receive some basic level of training on some of these things that they might not know. Because I think if you saw it, you wouldn't question me anymore. You'd be right. like, holy God, that was awful. Right. And it's not like what it looks like on TV, right? right. I, always, I always joke, I wish my son had TV autism or TV bipolar or TV something because it's done in a half hour and wrapped up and nicely everything's solved, right? Yes. But in real life doesn't feel that way. <laughs> or it, it goes in one direction on TV. And so yes. I often, that's another thing that I'd say to people who don't 
live this journey, something that I could share is please don't assume that there is a trajectory and we're moving across yes. like in one direction. <laughs> How are things going is a minute to minute, if not day by day um, conversation. And so um, please forgive me when I seem frustrated. If you say to me, well, she seemed like she was so much better. She seemed like she was feeling better. She did. <laughs> right. Right. That was two days ago. I think that's so important too, because as a caregiver, isn't that disruptive and hard to plan and all that? Because you never know what the day's going to bring. It's not like you can say, oh, we passed this phase, now we're here. Right. It's constantly coming from different directions. Yes, I have said it's like chasing a chicken around a barnyard. That is the movement. Yeah. <laughs> it, is not, it is every single way. Um, her dad texted me because he was out of state, and he had been gone a few days, and he said, how is she doing? And I said, lots of different ways. <laughs> <laughs> in this four whole days, she's had 18 different plateaus. In the last two seconds or... <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's really important because it does change constantly. So as you think about the journey you've been on with your, with your child, what has really been a barrier to getting the help your child needed or something you tried that just didn't work in your case that might be helpful for people to know that this was a barrier? There have been a lot of barriers, and since it did start when she was very young and sort of progressed um, through these years and became more discernible mm -hmm. um, to the untrained eye, right. um, so I would say some of the barriers along the way were um, her dad and I, like we, our lack of understanding what was really going on and always well-intentioned, but sometimes probably um, detrimental plans that we did. I, I have a background in behavioral health, so we did a lot of like charts and if then and first then and I'll know you're ready when this and you know we um, have always wanted to be helpful but haven't always known what the hell we were doing. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the point where we were getting, she had a physical and her blood pressure, she's just a little girl off the charts. And they said, she does seem to have an amazing amount of anxiety. We've, we're giving an eye test and, and she seems to be having like a panic attack. But we better bring her back in a week because that's really not healthy for her to have, have that high of blood pressure. So when she came back in a week and they just did the blood pressure and they kind of were taking more of a mental health approach, they um, referred us for psychiatry at that time um, because of the high level of anxiety that they saw just at the physical. And it was something that did not work. It, it was a bad fit. It was a psychiatrist with no bedside manner. It was awful. And I have some background in this area and I will say it was awful. And so that was really limiting um, medical appointments or a trigger for her. That, that's not easy in so this situation. Get, yeah, so you get the person to the appointment and then it blows up also. It was not good. And so that kept us from getting medical intervention for a whole nother year because that went so poorly. And, you know, her dad felt like this is, you know, what I'm talking about. Like, she doesn't have a mental health issue. Right. Um, so let's stop, you know, coming at her with it um, and, you know, stop projecting things onto her. Right. Um, so that was something. Um, school is something that hasn't worked. Um, and it hasn't worked for a long time, but we've thrown a lot of things at it. Seventh grade mm -hmm. was where it really hit the fan, and we realized that she could not handle it, and mm -hmm. she was breaking down every single day. Oh. Um, we dual enrolled her. And then after winter break, had to just pull out entirely in homeschool. But during that time, we also were able to get her therapy and medication because 
it was becoming so abundantly clear that she needed more intervention, and that was seventh grade. And um, then in ninth grade, again, um, she went to school in eighth grade, and it did work. She was on medication. Things seemed to be going pretty well. And she had learned the, the building in the system when she was dual enrolled in seventh grade. But then in ninth grade, when she had to make another transition and another change, um, the, the, the school anxiety um, just really ramped up. And to the point where now she is homeschooled. She's not, right. she's not in the public school system because they just don't have what she needs there. Right. And, and she cannot deal with the many levels of stress. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because when it comes to children's mental health, as opposed to adults, right? I mean, I'm sure this is true for adults, but not at the same level. Kids are going through a lot of changes. You mentioned like structural changes, huge changes from elementary to junior high to high school and what your day's like and what your life's like and your social world's like. But physically, our kids are changing like immensely between childhood, adolescence, puberty, right? So their bodies are changing. So it sounded like your daughter was doing well with medication, and then she wasn't. And that seems typical for a lot of families I know. Mm-hmm. Something works, and then all of a sudden it doesn't. I know that happens to adults, but I think for children, when you're going through so many physical changes, social changes at such a phenomenal level, it just feels like you're constantly starting over again. Do you, Does that make sound right? Or Yes, that's actually been an added layer to this struggle. So starting in ninth grade, she became med non-compliant, which was a very big hurdle. We had allowed her to go off her medication. She was doing really well in eighth grade and felt that she didn't need it. And so that was, that was done with our blessing. But then in ninth grade, when she was really struggling, my mantra has always been, I'm not saying you have to go to school. I'm saying that everybody who is mentally and physically healthy is at school today. And so if you're not, we need to be looking at what's underneath and that's what we need to be doing. I don't need you to go to school just to have geography of being in that building. I need us to look at why you can't, you know, feel like you're successful there and why it is putting you past a point to be there. And so these are the things that we can do. Absolutely. And she just felt like, you know, nothing ever works. It doesn't help anyway. And so she was on, we got her to do a medication that, of course, this is, I've heard so many people share this journey and frustration. That medication did not work. Mm -hmm. And so for her, it was fueling the, I told you nothing works. Yeah. And um, so we had our, you know, four to six weeks and (laughs) went off of it. And then the next uh, medication that was prescribed, she just was never compliant enough for us to realize if it was working or not. And that was a huge struggle. And in the meantime, you're thinking, what am I going to do? She's missing school. And again, we're going back to our behavioral things, which were (sighs) not the point. It was not the point. And and in her ninth through 10th grade year, another thing that we didn't identify was depression was starting to take over anxiety. Mm-hmm. And we were still considering it to be anxiety, um, though the medication often is the same. But right. the way I might approach things with her, um, recognizing that it's depression, not laziness or avoidance right. and that kind of thing. And so, yeah, we've been our own worst enemy a few times. And... Um, but well, you have to be gentle with yourself about that. First of all, everything you said about that, what I love about this podcast is I have parents who don't have children with mental illness go, that's true for all parents too. Every parent 
messes up and tries a mess. Yeah. <laughs> so we all learn as we go. But here it's really hard because, as you're saying, you don't know what's working. Oh, you feel like you've got to be anything. And you don't have a control, right? You can't right. take right. a control kid and your kid and yeah. see what's working or what's yeah. not. Particularly with the medication. I just feel like I just am, you know, putting pellets into a cage and hoping <laughs> for the best. And, you know, we're on another new medication right now that we're in the four to six weeks range, and that doesn't appear to be helping either. And then you have to decide if you want to up the dose or try something different and go another. And in the meantime, it is very painful to be inside their skin and, you know, you feel rather helpless. Absolutely. And it's just hard to watch them suffer. Yeah. Yeah. And not everybody, you know, going back to the people who don't live this day in and day out, not everybody sees that they are suffering. Most of our kids are amazing actors and actresses, mm-hmm. and they want to be accepted and be part of a group and be normal. I'd add to that. Most of our kids that have mental illness are incredibly strong. Yeah, The strength it takes for them to do what they do is immense. And if I'm hearing about your daughter, she must be an incredibly strong person to be able to make people think she's just fine when she's dealing with all that. It has to be really hard to get through. Yeah, and she actually hit a point last fall where she did sort of have a full breakdown. And <clears throat> that is nothing that I had seen before. And it was like um, somebody broke a toy mm-hmm. almost. I, she, yeah. she became monosyllabic. She, and she is somebody who never left the house not looking, you know, on point. Mm-hmm. She shuffled around. When I would need to take her to appointments, she would still wear her pajama bottoms, and I'd have to hand her her shoes and the the light behind her eyes had gone out and so I do think in that time also she was incredibly strong because just staying here like was my main goal Um, because I could see that the weight of the pain was almost unbearable and so at that time she couldn't um she tried a couple times to leave the house um and she had some friends who really hung in like for being teenagers they really hung in there and didn't give up on her over the months and she did try to go out and see them a couple times and didn't make it but I was so proud of her for you know one time we got all the way to the door all she had her hand on the doorknob wonderful yeah and now she's able to leave the house and go see her friends and things oh that's great yeah so I think that there are you know little wins Absolutely. And you just have a different life. You celebrate different things. Absolutely. But it's so important to celebrate them and recognize. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what has worked well What in trying to get help for her? Things that have worked that you're like, oh, thank goodness that that worked that way. I think having some background in this area was extremely helpful. Not that it helped me deal with her necessarily better. But I knew people, and I knew Mm -hmm. therapists, and um, I already had, you know, therapists that I had worked with that I knew had done an amazing job or did good work and with some really challenging kiddos. And so I was, you know, I felt like I'm very lucky that I was able to hand pick because finding a fit is a huge part. Mm -hmm. And you can have a talented therapist and a person who's willing to do therapy and have that not be a fit. And so I feel like that's been a blessing and that has really worked well like being able to find providers and I I feel like one of the things that was working well and I've changed my tactic on it but I at first was thinking when she had that I I want to say breakdown um that I would um, 
share that with people, you know, because I have felt strongly like I have to be part of reducing stigma. Right. And now I am completely backtracking from that because in order to reduce stigma, you sometimes need a community or a society that's more educated and more well-informed, which is why when you asked who would I talk to and what would I say, um, because this is not mine to tell necessarily. It's my daughter's, and she doesn't want it shared, and now I can kind of see why, because people don't understand, um, and they sell her short or sell us short or feel like, we might be wrong in some way. Absolutely. It's it's very challenging. And so um, that is something that, you know, has worked well, too, is my daughter. My mm. daughter is a fighter. Mm. And so having her has worked well. Well, she sounds like she's awesome. She is. I think that's sometimes really hard is when the world doesn't get to see how awesome our kids are. Because maybe they can't get out the door. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you're seeing a different side. You're not seeing the true person. You're seeing the illness. Or you're not seeing anything. <laughs> right. right. And so, um, but I'm, I think that's the one thing we can say is our kids are awesome. We get to yell that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so. I record her too often when we are, you know, having fun. or And she'll, you know, tell me to stop and tease me. But... I say, no, I like, this is you. And later mm-hmm. she'll ask for my um, phone and she'll look at those videos. Yeah. And I want her to remember, this is you too. Absolutely. You know, like on, on the couch having a bad day, that's not all you are. Exactly. You're everybody you've ever been. I like that. I like that a lot. So right now, because as we said, it changes moment to moment to moment. In this moment, do you feel like you're swimming Drowning, treading water. How are you right now in this journey? Right now, I would say I'm treading water at best, but that's really me. I don't know that my daughter has changed that much. I think that um, a, a couple of things, maybe for me and my ability to just sort of be copacetic, yeah. um, is changed. And maybe that's just the ability to have long-standing care and you know it's a lot different my energy level now (laughs) than it was a couple of years ago um my daughter might be exactly the same but I might worry incessantly one day and be completely okay the next right and feel like I can't leave her one day and feel like she'll be fine the next let's talk about that because I feel like we don't honor enough that we too are human beings with emotional lives. And sometimes when you're so busy taking care of a child who has emotional struggles, we're so busy trying to help them with their emotions that we don't allow us <laughs> ourselves. You know what I mean? Like we're just, okay, I'll take care of myself later. I'm just taking care of your emotions. So it's some days I can deal with my son's issues and some days they really get to me. And he might be exactly the same both days. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And I I think that it one thing that's important is getting some sort of therapy and care for your own self. Absolutely. And self-care. And I have neglected that a little bit. I have done it and not done it um, over the years. You're but, not alone. <laughs> <laughs> but that is definitely something that I would recommend. 
yeah. because it's, you, you know, you heal some just being able to share things that it would not be productive to share with your family because Absolutely. it escalates some situations. Absolutely. You also said something that worked well for you that our listeners who may not have the benefit of being in a profession where they feel like they have that network, they can still network like through support groups, through advocacy networks. You can create a network where you know people in the field. So that that's very helpful to have that. And so that's something to think about because I know if you don't have that, you're like, well, where do I go? But you can you start? start trying to build that network of other families who've been through it talk to their providers and get sort of get to know who's out there and who's doing what. I, I don't know if, if you agree with that or not. It just seems like you're right. Knowing lots of people in this realm can be really helpful. Yes, and I think that even if you don't know anybody, in most areas there's NAMI or something along those lines that has a support group for family members, and those can be so beneficial on so many levels. Not only are you feeling less isolated because you have somebody who shares your experiences, and that can just feel affirming. But then you also have people who have tried 14 therapists and found one who's good, <laughs> and that is a huge resource. Absolutely. And so I would strongly encourage that and have, and have done that myself. And it is something that I think we all need and deserve is to not feel alone. Absolutely. Because no one in this situation is alone. It's so, but it can feel very much it, like that feels like it but when you look at the numbers it's so common which is so sad that we're feeling alone when we're surrounded by others who are feeling alone in the same reality so what is your self-care routine or or more appropriate survival technique what do you do to take care of you when things are getting rough and so you mentioned some things that like yoga I can imagine really helps but what what do you do Yes. Well, I try to keep a good balance of things in my life. And I actually was doing sort of some volunteering things in the community. I've, I've had to back away from that. And again, those are things that can ebb and flow. Yeah. And right now where my daughter is, I'm not able to do that. But when you help you heal mm-hmm. and you're not so directed inwardly on my own issues and yes. my own thing. And if yeah. you're you know being of service to others... I think that it's therapeutic. In my experience, it has been hugely therapeutic. It gets you outside of your own head and you're doing mm-hmm. something productive and can feel good about that. And so that that has been, and I'm sure it will be again, um, and I enjoy doing that. Um, yoga, yes, absolutely. I can tell sometimes if I started my day with yoga because when things come at me, I <laughs> react a little more uh, even-keeled. But um, And sometimes it is just indulging a little like I was in a ridiculously complex and challenging you know life space in uh, right around um, between Thanksgiving and and, um, winter break and the um, therapist that I was chatting with said what are you doing like for your own self and I said well this morning I had a fudge brownie and like layered peanut butter on it and I just enjoyed every morsel of that brownie and I just like took that moment and really picking up on some of the things that are shared as part of strategies and and coping strategies and and those kind of supports for people with mental health is also really good for us as well. Mindfulness is something that I would encourage everybody to look into because you can pull yourself out of 
a vortex that you might be slipping into. Absolutely. <laughs> because of your situation, which is very real, but you don't, it doesn't benefit anybody to just kind of lean into it or wallow. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and that fudge brownie was real too. Yeah, so it was okay to be with the fudge. I was for happy. It, it, it Maybe bad for the hips, but good for the soul. <laughs> Absolutely, I love that. So, what's your most laughable moment? Sometimes, if we didn't have laughter, it'd be a lot harder to get through this. What What makes you laugh about when you think of this journey? I think one thing that was a laughable moment that is not necessarily laughable now. Um, actually, I guess it is. I didn't realize that my daughter had started to self-medicate, and that oh. was uh, tough. Yeah, because I felt like maybe there's one thing we didn't have going wrong, and right. <laughs> surprise. And so when I I first experienced that, and she was under the influence, and it actually led to a discourse that wouldn't have probably otherwise have happened. And I remember at one point, you know, things were very escalated on her end, and she was yelling at me. And she said, why aren't you yelling back? Why aren't you fighting? You almost look like you're smiling. What's wrong with you? And I said, oh, I'm just happy we're finally talking. <laughs> I love it. I bet that annoyed her, though. <laughs> well, everything annoyed her right then, so to be fair, it wasn't out of the ordinary. But yeah, yeah, it was actually that, you know, better out than in. Absolutely. And sometimes I think parents protect our children. And keep in mind that our children try to protect us, and they yes. they they perceive things as being good and bad, even when we try and direct them not to. They don't want us to necessarily see dark, ugly things, and you you need to. Like, I need to know that's there, because we can't address it or fix it or get to the root and pull it if, if I don't ever even know. Thanks for saying that. I don't think that's something we've discussed yet in any of these podcasts, but it's so important. Our kids do try to protect us. They, they do. don't want us to know. Right all the horrible things that are happening inside their heads. And, that and that's dangerous. And, it's very dangerous. And I can see not wanting people to know, and I'm sure it's very vulnerable, but you, you have to be able to let that out and give that some space. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. I really appreciate it and sharing your story with us. Thank you. You have been listening to the Just Ask Mom series, part of the Mothers on the Frontline podcast copyrighted in 2018. Today's podcast host was Tammy Nyden. The music is Old English, written, performed, and recorded by Flame Emoji. For more podcasts in this and other series relating to children's mental health, go to mothersonthefrontline.com or subscribe to Mothers on the Frontline on iTunes, Android, Google Play, Stitcher, or Spotify. Mothers on the Frontline is a nonprofit 501c3 organization that uses storytelling for caregiver healing and children's mental health advocacy. We strive to reduce stigma, educate the public, and influence positive policy change through our podcast series and storytelling workshops. We are currently working with Grinnell College to document and archive stories of lived experience with the school to prison pipeline, an issue importantly connected to children's mental health and well-being. If you would like to support our work, please visit our website and make a tax-deductible donation at mothersonthefrontline.com.